Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and get started, if we could, please, with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do bow before you this morning, so grateful to be able to come together as the body of Christ. Thank you for your spirit that illumines our minds, shows us the truth, makes the scriptures clear to us. Father, we are desperately without understanding apart from him. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Thank you for the book of Daniel, written so long ago, but yet so pertinent. Thank you for our study of it, the freedom we have to come and discuss it openly. Pray that you would bless our time together, that it would edify the saints. And Lord, in the following hour, that all we do as a corporate body would be pleasing and satisfying to you and would give praise to our Savior, Jesus Christ, for that's our purpose in gathering this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this is week number 26 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we've completed chapter 7, and uh, this week we'll start into chapter 8. And having finished chapter 7, really, uh, the week before last, last week I tried to build a, a rationale of how I, I interpret the beasts that are shown in chapter 7, specifically the fourth beast, and how I believe that it's both the Roman Empire that existed at the time of Jesus Christ and is also the, uh, the forces of evil that we see in the book of Revelation. And so with that understanding comes uh, a need for an interpretation of how do you get from the Roman Empire all the way through at least 2,000 years of history to the end of the age. And so we took time to walk through the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and to see how it existed for another thousand years beyond um, what is known as the Eastern Roman Empire. And then ultimately that empire gave way to the Ottoman Empire um, that was uh, all based, both of them, both the Eastern Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire, both based in the same city of Constantinople, which was renamed to Istanbul, is called Istanbul today, is in northern Turkey, uh, but on, in Asia, actually, not in Europe. And so um, we walk through those things knowing that the Ottoman Empire lasted all the way until World War I, uh, where it joined with the um, central forces and then ultimately was defeated by the Allied powers. And at that time, the Ottoman Empire was split and divided among many nations. Uh, and so those, uh, that empire was done away with. That empire is also what is known as the Muslim Caliphate. Um, you hear a lot of talk today about the Muslims wanting to reinstigate the Caliphate. That's what they would be talking about, is that that... Ottoman Empire and lasted um, for 600 years. And so putting all that together and knowing that um, the forces that dominated um, the Middle East were first the Roman Empire, then the Ottoman Empire, and now we are divided among many nations. That's the way that I uh, get from what happened at the time of Jesus Christ to um, the end of the age is not so much of um, the names of the people and all, but where where is the central power? And it's always been up in, you know, for 1900 years, it was in the city of Istanbul. And so I believe that's where the ultimate um, capital of the evil forces in the book of Revelation will be. They'll be based out of Istanbul. They, I believe they'll be Muslim in both their politics and their religion. And uh, that's the way the world seems to be trending today, which is the reason you ought to keep your eye on what's happening in Turkey and specifically who's in control and what are the politics and um, what are they saying? Because I've always thought that Turkey had um, an unsubstantiated influence over Europe, and they do. 
um, what they say often carries the weight in in the European community, and I don't understand why, because they're not any great political power, they're not some great um, economic power, I mean, they're a mess, and yet they give a lot of influence and have a lot of influence in the European Union, and so um, you ought to keep your eye on what's happening in Turkey, um, because I believe that's where we'll see a lot of things centered. Um, you know, in the, the book of Revelation, you have the Antichrist, who I believe will be centered in Istanbul, and you also have the false prophet. And there are many thoughts about who the false prophet is. I won't go into that today, maybe in another day. But anyway, we tried to build that bridge from the ancient world to the modern world and how those things fit together and what will happen in the book of Revelation. Um, don't demand that you agree with me but there, you have to have a rationale for the things that you believe. And uh, all, you, know, you always take what rises out of scripture as uh, preeminent, but then also world history, you need to look at it and be influenced by um, what has been written there. Uh, I don't accept the, um, the theory, I guess you would call it, the in interpretation that the, uh, the Antichrist is the resurrected Roman Empire, which is European in nature. Um, I think when we get to Daniel chapter 9, you'll see another reason why people go to that interpretation, but I believe there's a, a, a different interpretation which can be substantiated in Scripture every bit as much as that one can be. And so that's the one I hold to, and we'll talk about it when we get to chapter 9, where there be need to talk about um, who actually destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's what that part of scripture speaks of. So we'll leave those things um, for a little while uh, and go into chapter eight today. Chapter eight is another vision that Daniel has. It is connected to the first vision, the vision in chapter 7 that we just looked at. There were four beasts in chapter 7. There are only two in chapter 8, and it's the middle two. It's the second and third beasts that were seen in, um, in chapter 7. And uh, there's a good bit of detail given there um, that we'll need to try and interpret and uncover uh, the interpretation, like in chapter eight, is given in chapter seven is given in chapter eight, but of course no names are given other than who the nations are, um, but who are the people? Because we have a pretty good record of what happened after Alexander the Great, um, even before Alexander the Great, back into the Medo-Persian Empire. We have pretty good um, records of that time frame. So we'll look at some of that as we go through this. Um, so let me just uh, read the first few verses of chapter 8 and then we'll begin to walk through them. So beginning in Daniel chapter 8 verse 1, there the scripture reads, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, of, the king a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I, I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns now standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were, were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. Okay, now I, I would hope as we go through this, that some things that we talked about in chapter seven come into your mind here. And um, if not, then I'll put them there <laughs> because these are connected and um, they go together 
Um, there are people who actually believe they don't go together, but I'm okay with that. Um, they are very apparent um, that they should go together in my mind. So um, the time of the vision, in the third year of Belshazzar, you'll remember that um, the first vision was in the first vision, uh, first year of Belshazzar. And um, this, where Daniel says, um, appeared to me previously, that really could be interpreted, interpreted, appeared to me at the beginning, meaning at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. And so this is two years later, and Daniel is having another vision. He even, in my mind, kind of indicates these go together uh, because it's subsequent to the one that I had at the beginning. And so it's just ongoing, uh, giving more detail you know, this time than in the previous vision. And you'll remember that I've said that chapter 7, uh, in my mind, is parallel to chapter 2, which was Nebuchadnezzar's um, dream that God then gave to Daniel as a vision, and then Daniel gave both the vision and the interpretation of that. If we look back real quick at that interpretation, in, in chapter 2, in verse um, 30, and you'll see these two that are talked about here, but they're talked about in very brief manner in chapter 2. If you look at verse 30, it's not 30. I thought it was 30. It is 30. No. It's before that, if I could just find it. I always do this, don't I? Oh, it's actually 39, verse 39 of chapter 2. After you, meaning after Nebuchadnezzar, after the Babylonian Empire, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. That's it. That's these two kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They get one verse. So here in the the vision given to Daniel in chapter 8, we get a lot more, and we get a lot more detail. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar saw it in brief, basically that there were just four kingdoms that would exist, and then the eternal kingdom would come, um, beginning with Babylon. And then now here in chapter 7 and 8, chapter 7 gave us a lot of details about the fourth kingdom, Chapter 8 gives us a lot of details about the second and third kingdom. Not much given about the Babylonian Empire in any of these visions because it was within 10 years of ending. So you're right at the very end. Belshazzar's king. He's king for 11 years from, uh, eight, from 650 to 639 B.C. And so um, you're... you're within nine years here of the end of the Babylonian kingdom. So we don't get any details about it. Um, so uh, we go on here. Chapter 7 um, is the, I mean, chapter 8, he starts. He's having another vision. It's in the third year. It's two years after the first vision. And then in verse 2, he says, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I, I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Probably better to say the Uli River, um, but this is the way New American Standard continues to call it a canal, but it is actually a river. In 1850, the city of Susa was uh, unearthed, archaeological finding, and um, so they've uncovered a lot of it. It was built on four mounds, not mountains, but mounds. Uh, on one of those mounds was the citadel in which uh, Daniel finds himself, actually in the citadel. That would be like the fort that protected the city. On one of the mounds is the, um, the city itself, 
Uh, on another mound is the what would be the poor district. Um, the city was very elaborate and very nice. This other mound was not so nice and is where the poor people would have lived. And then on the fourth mound, um, they've uncovered, um, I guess it's the, what do you call them, the palace of um, Darius I, who would be known as Darius the Great. Darius the Great came after Daniel, so it's not the Darius that we saw in uh, chapter, in the chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, not the same guy holding the same title. Remember, we talked about that Darius is probably a title, not a name, but this Darius, Darius I, is known as Darius the Great, and he ruled the Persian Empire from 522 to 486 B.C. So probably just after Daniel, he may have been born while Daniel was still alive. But uh, anyway, that's the city of Susa. So it had a palace, it had a citadel, it had a very nice elaborate city, and then it had a poor section on these four mounds. And uh, so it exists today, you can go look at it if you want to, it's uninhabited. But not far from there, is the city of uh, Shasha, which is in Iran. All of this is in Iran, um, property owned by Iran. And so um, that city exists today. And just to the west of the city, there is a river. And so, you know, the more discoveries that are made, the more the, the biblical account is confirmed. And so this uncovering of the citadel in uh, the city of Susa with a river to the west of it is exactly what Daniel is picturing here. And so Daniel finds himself in the citadel, in the fort, in the protection area, uh, looking out and seeing the river. And so uh, a lot of, um, you know, I, <laughs> you always take the biblical account to be accurate, right? That's our first step. And then you use the discoveries of men in archaeology or in, you know, uh, as they find more artifacts and have more history or whatever. The more they find of that kind of stuff, the more it just confirms what's written in Scripture. And so, you know, Daniel is, is not writing about abstract things that he just sees in his mind that doesn't mean anything that didn't actually exist. He's writing about true history and things that actually existed that we can confirm today, that they were there. And they were there just like Daniel said they were, with a river and with a citadel and with a palace. And um, so this city at one time, when Darius I ruled, was the capital not only of the Elam province where it's located, and, and that's what Daniel says, but of the whole Persian Empire. This was the capital city when Darius the first, if, if you remember, when I, we talked about the Persians just a little bit, um, by my count, um, I can't remember if it's 29, I think it's, it's either 19 or 29 rulers of the Persian Empire during their 210-year reign. I mean, there were a lot of different rulers, and they, they moved the capital city around the land of Persia as different people would come into power. And so um, this is uh, Darius I, who I uh, believe came right after Cyrus. So you have Cyrus, who is mentioned in many places in Scripture. Daniel mentions him briefly. And then comes um, Darius the Great, and then a whole slew of other people who, um, who take the throne in the Persian Empire, ultimately defeated by Alexander the Great. So um, anyway, this, is, um, this writing here of Daniel is well confirmed in the, um, in the archaeological findings. Yeah.
Right. Right. And then, then Paul very rightly exhorts us twice in his epistle, in First Timothy. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will devote from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons and on and on. And what he's doing there is the kind of the reverse of what you just described, where you we can do today and observe historical archaeological discovery. What Paul's doing here is saying, sin Yeah, and, and this, the New Testament does that over and over again that uh, confirms that what John wrote, the spirit of Antichrist, is here, meaning in the first century A.D., the spirit of the Antichrist was alive and well. So don't think he's not now and has been throughout all of history. And you can see some people who you would see were uh, clearly... I don't think they're back there today. Oh, Lord. Sorry. Um, that um, are clearly have been influenced by the evil one, uh, maybe even possessed by the evil one, or at least by some of his demons. And you can name them through history as well as I can. <laughs> and it's still true today that the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well, meaning those who are opposed to Jesus Christ. Uh, ultimately, there will be one in the end, We'll actually see him pictured in here in chapter 8. It's not, the, it's not him. Some think it is, but I don't. Um, but it's, he's pictured and he's foreshadowed in great detail in this chapter. Yeah, and that, I mean, you know, and, and those same descriptors could have been used to the first century BC, uh, AD. Yeah, or, yeah, I mean, there have been many times throughout history when, when that list that he referred to in 2 Timothy have, have been prevalent. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that, right? That Satan doesn't know when the tribulation will be, but he'll be ready. And he has been ready. And he's had his leaders. And, you know, he may have thought it was then, but it wasn't. And so um, he doesn't know uh, when that time will come. Now, you know, and, and he probably, at least as well as we do, probably better, understands what is written here. Right. He just, yeah, Satan just doesn't think this is accurate. Doesn't think that the end of the story is right, but it is. And he'll ultimately find out. But he's been working in society and in people toward this point for a long time. And so don't think that anything is special about today and different, but just look at the signs of the time. I told you about all those preachers who thought year 2000 was it, right? You can go back and listen to their 1990-something sermons and, oh, 2000's got to be the day. And they were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were, um, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people. Um, and guys I respect who, I just have a feeling that it's coming. It is coming, but I don't have a feeling that it's, it's going to be next year or the year after, but it's coming. Um, and so we need to be ready, and Satan will be ready. He's orchestrating today. And so um, you go on down, and before we look at verse 3, I want to show you something. 
um, just because you might as well know it because it comes later. So verses 20 and 21 is in the interpretation, and it describes who's being talked about here. So let's go, go ahead and get them on the table so that we can talk about them as we go through this vision. And then we'll talk about it more when we get over here. But, I mean, it's very, very clear, is it not? Verse 20 of this chapter. The ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. That's pretty plain, right? And then the next verse. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Who's the first king of the Grecian Empire? Alexander the Great. So there you go. The players are named in explicit detail in these two verses. So you don't have to wonder as we walk through this vision of who is he talking about. I mean, he's explicitly told. Now you gotta realize, in the time of Daniel, certainly he would have known about Media and Persia. I mean, they're just adjacent to Babylon, um, one to the north, one to the south, so he would have known who they were. But the Grecian Empire, I mean, certainly knew about the Greeks, right? Not a not insignificant people, but certainly not a world power by any means. Uh, you know, so, but he would have known who these people were uh, in a distant way. He would have known Media and Persia better um, because you got to believe by the time Daniel's writing, maybe even after Persia de defeated um, Babylon, not he had this vision before that, but he's basically told that Persia is going to, Medo-Persia is going to destroy Babylon. I mean, because here's the, his vision. So no wonder he kept it to himself, right? Oh, Belshazzar, by the way, you know, he's not going to tell the king this vision because it speaks of his destruction. Um, so now when you get to chapter 5, He's all ready to tell Belshazzar that he's done because of the writing on the wall. And then that night, Belshazzar is killed. Um, but not here, not now, not 10 years before the end of the kingdom because he obviously doesn't know when the end of the kingdom is coming. He knows it is coming, but he doesn't know when. So as we go through chapter 8, you don't have to wonder about who's being spoken of here. And I think it even without that explicit, you would know who this is just because of the description. So in verse 3, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. Okay, we didn't have a ram in chapter 7, no ram. So we have a new animal who's being pictured here. Um, and he's got two long horns. Okay, now they're both long, meaning that they are significant. But one's longer than the other, meaning that it is more significant. Now you'll remember that Medo-Persia was represented by the bear in chapter 7, with one side humped up. Remember that? Well, that's the same thing here. We have two horns, but one's longer than the other. So... They're both strong, but one is longer than the other. And notice that he says, now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. Here's another reason I believe that the interpretation back in chapter 6 of Darius is not Cyrus, which is the popular view today that Darius is just another name for Cyrus uh, because he's the stronger king. And by the way, they had already decimated the Medes, um, you know, two kings earlier. I don't believe that. And we talked about that and why, but here's another reason why. Notice that this ram has two horns. It's not one horn, meaning Cyrus, it has two. So there's a strong king and then there's a stronger king. And the stronger king is Cyrus of Persia because ultimately the Medo-Persian Empire becomes just known as the Persian Empire because they were stronger and Media becomes a province of the Persian Empire. 
So that's true, and I would never debate that, but at the time when Daniel writes about when the Medo-Persians take, take Babylon, there are two kings. And you remember we, we talked about this in probably more detail than you wanted to. I believe that other king, that smaller king, the one who is by title named Darius is Syaxares II out of the Median kingships. We, we have him well documented in history that he existed. And the interesting thing is, if you, you look at what the cuneiforms say, he would have been older than Cyrus, which fits perfectly with this verse, right? That you have, but one was longer than the other. Cyrus is stronger, ultimately, than Cyaxares but with a longer one coming up last. He's younger. And that fits with what we know from the cuneiforms that Cyaxares was older than Cyrus by many years, probably died within the first couple of years after Babylon fell, and then Cyrus um, just assumes his throneship, and there is no more Median kings after that. It's just the Persian kings. So it fits perfectly with what this verse says. And so, you know, I hadn't put those things together because we hadn't gotten to chapter 8, but now I look at it and I go, wow, that just, it just fits with what we've been saying all along. And I don't know what else you would do with this verse if it's not that. Because he doesn't say there's one horn, he says there's two. And if Cyrus was in control of everything, there would only have been one horn. So, you know, I don't know. You, the more you read, the more you understand, and the more clear it becomes. So I, I think this just emboldens that thought that Darius was a Median king and treated um, Daniel very well. As a matter of fact, you remember Daniel, one of three who commanded, what was it, uh, 70 other wise men? And those other two that were equal with Daniel and all the ones underneath them, what was their fate? They were thrown into the lion's den, all of them. So then you just have Darius and Daniel and nobody else because they've all been thrown into the lion's den. Them, their wives, and their children all thrown in. Because we remember we talked about that would be a lot of people. Yeah, hundreds of people thrown into the lion's den when Daniel walked out that morning. So um, anyway, I digress. Um, okay, so we, we know from reading verse 20, this is talking about the Medo-Persian Empire, right? I mean, it's not, you don't have to wonder who this is. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And um, so um, as you go into verse 4, He's budding toward the westward, northward, and southward. What's missing? The eastward, right? Well, if you go to Susa and you go east, then you run into a mountain ridge. And you, there are no people there, right? I mean, this is a really real mountains. And so he's not going eastward because there's nothing eastward but mountains. So he's going in the other three directions. And meaning he controls everything around him. And certainly the Persian Empire did do that for a period of some 200 years. Controlled that whole region that is a hotbed for activity today. And so um, they're the Zagros Mountains is what's to the east. And actually the city of Susa is in the foothills of the mountain range. That's why there's four mounds there. Uh, it's the beginning of the mountains, and very quickly, you're up into the mountains, which are that you can go see them today in in Iran. You know, I always think of Iran as being like Arabia, being sandy and flat. No, no not at all. Very, very uh, steep terrain in the country of Iran. So um, different than the way I think of it, but I'm just wrong in the way I think of it. So. Um, so no, not to the east, but in the other three directions, um, this ram is budding. And you notice it says no other power could stand against him. I mean, four 
two centuries, Persia was the main player. No one could uh, um, withstand them. And so um, their kingdom was not as big as the Roman Empire or um, the Greek, uh, the, ultimately the Grecian Empire, but it was still, they were the significant player. And uh, Alexander the Great has to, do, to defeat them in order to take over their kingdom. Um, so, um, okay, here, I, I knew I'd find it eventually. Um, there are 14 kings of Persia that we know of, and these get into some pretty interesting names. Um, you um, will see this as we interpret some of chapter eight and nine. There's uh, kings known as Xerxes, and then there's Artaxerxes. Well, those are all Persian names. Those are all Persian kings. And ultimately, the king that um, Alexander the Great killed was um, Artaxerxes V. So they just keep going back and forth. And if you look, there's Darius I, there's Darius II, there's Artaxerxes, there's Artaxerxes I and II and three, and then there's Xerxes one, two, and three, all these different names of kings, but ultimately Artaxerxes V is killed by um, Alexander the Great in 329, and that's the end of the Persian Empire. So we have, this is all well documented in, in the writings, and we don't have to wonder about what happened. Um, there are books, volumes, written about all of this, but as I count, there were 14 kings of Persia, and that's what the reason the capital city moved around. Susa, though, was one of the first. That's um, where Darius I was at. So um, you notice the ram does some of those characteristics that we saw um, back about the fourth kingdom. He does it in a minor way, but nevertheless, as he's budding in all the different directions, he's, uh, no one can defeat his power, he's very pleased with himself. Remember Nebuchadnezzar looking out over his city and saying, look what I've built, and then that day he goes insane, and for seven years he acts as an animal. Well, this is the same thing this guy is doing, and notice that he, he magnified himself, which is one of the characteristics that we saw of the fourth kingdom where the, uh, that small horn that became large in appearance magnified himself and boasted about himself. So this is the characteristics of world leaders. Always has been. Nebuchadnezzar thought himself to be pretty special, right? He's uh, seen as the uh, golden head of the statue, so he builds a big statue made out of gold, ultimately, which is why the three were thrown into the fiery furnace, because they wouldn't worship it. So these guys are always um, kind of over the top about themselves. And the Antichrist is to the extreme uh, about himself and boasting about himself and showing his power. And we'll see that foreshadowed um, a little later on here in chapter 8 um, as we talk about some of the descendants of the Grecian Empire. Okay, so this ram is magnifying himself. He's boasting about himself. Um, in, notice in verse 5. So that's all that's given of the Persian king. He's getting ready to be done away with. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming up from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Okay, we know that goats actually touch the ground, right? So what is this showing us? And it's the same thing that we saw back in chapter 7. Let's go there and read that verse. Um, chapter 7, verse 6, you remember that the leopard is what represented uh, the Grecian kingdom. So 7, 6, um, the verse, and after this I kept looking, behold, another one, like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird, 
The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And you remember we talked about the speed of animals, that uh, the cheetah is faster than the leopard, so he's not the fastest guy on the planet. But when you put four wings of birds on him, the birds are actually the fastest animals, right? Uh, some of them being clocked at 140 miles an hour. So then you give him not one set of wings, but two sets of wings and a fast animal. So it speaks of the swiftness of which Alexander the Great took the world. And we know that's exactly what happened in a very rapid fashion. So here, when you look at this male goat over in chapter 8, and he's not he appears not to be touching the ground. Why? Because he's moving so fast. And so again, we speak of the speed of Alexander the Great coming and taking over most of the kingdoms of the world. And, and if you look at where Alexander the Great started in Macedonia, okay, and if you look at Macedonia and you look at Susa, Macedonia is to the west of Susa. Okay, and so that's exactly what this verse says, that you see a male goat coming from the west. And we already looked at chapter, verse 21, so we know this is Alexander the Great, this is the Grecian kingdom. And the conspicuous horn that is in the center between the eyes is a unicorn, which my granddaughters would love, <laughs> um, is Alexander the Great himself. So you see this repeated pattern, and we'll see it multiple times yet, in Daniel where beasts represent empires, horns represent kings. And that is true in the book of Revelation also. When you get there, beasts represent empires, horns represent kings. And so that just keep that in mind as you read all of these things um, because it becomes very obvious what they're talking of and what they're speaking of. So um, you have Alexander the Great in the Grecian kingdom coming from the west and you notice he says in verses 7 and 8, he pulls up beside the ram. He's enraged at the ram that he throws the ram to the ground and breaks his horns, meaning he kills their kings. Okay, and, and that would be, um, as I said, um, you know, one of these um, uh, kings that come later, 200 years after um, Susa's the capital, but nevertheless, he's seeing what's happening in the future, and he throws him to the ground, and he tramples on him, breaks his horns. So Alexander the Great defeats the Medo-Persian Empire, and we know he did that. He did that very late. It was one of the last kingdoms that he took. Um, he had already taken uh, all of Europe, had taken Northern Africa, had taken Egypt, um, had taken all the Middle East except for what Persia had, and then he actually fought twice against Persia. He fought against Persia, then went and defeated Egypt, then came back and fought against Persia again and defeats them and takes their kingdom. And actually, um, this was one of the downfalls, most people believe, of Alexander. He took on many of their customs of the Persians because he wanted them to respect him as their king. And so in order to do that, he took on many Persian customs. Actually stayed there for a while, um, is where he died. And we all know that, that very soon after Alexander the Great had, where his army said, okay, enough, we're exhausted, and we're gonna, we're gonna go back home. Uh, so he quit fighting people. He had plans to go into Arabia, um, but before he could do that, he died at a very young age. Um, not a mystery around Alexander's the death, not a lot of theories, um, doesn't really matter. We know he came to an end and uh, killed Artaxerxes V, took over the Persian kingdom. That's what's pictured here in these verses. And then let's just read um, verse 8 so we get this whole vision, um, uh, or at least this first part of it, onto the table. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, one of the greatest characteristics of Alexander the Great, 
because he was very arrogant and with some reason. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in his place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heavens. And we know that, right? Alexander's kingdom was divided into four kingdoms, um, the greatest of which was the Seleucid Empire, but you also had the Ptolemy Empire, which is Egypt, um, and then you have two other, Lysicomachus and Cassandra, Cassandra being back in the homeland of Greece, Lysicomachus being to the west of that, to the east of that, and then um, Ptolemy and Seleucid empires. So those are the four empires. We know that, well-documented in history. And it's the same thing that we saw back in chapter 7, where the leopard didn't have four horns, but he had four heads, representing this division of the kingdom into fourths. And um, I mean, by far, the most powerful of that is the Seleucid. So the rest of this, from verse 9 down through um, 14, which is the rest of the vision, it's not the interpretation, but it's the vision itself, I believe speaks of the Seleucid Empire, and in particular of one particular king of the Seleucid Empire that came toward the end. So we'll talk about that in excruciating detail, probably more than you want to, but um, that, that king is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. So uh, I believe that's who it is. And so we'll put that together and what did, uh, we'll look outside of Daniel, um, maybe into the Maccabees, uh, maybe into just some world history to know what Antiochus actually did. Uh, I think it's important because I believe it foreshadows what is given in chapter 9, and what the Antichrist ultimately does at the end of the age uh, is pictured in Antiochus Epiphanes. He's not the Antichrist. He does um, desolate the sacred temple, but it's not the desolation talking that Daniel will talk about in chapter 9. And we'll see reasons why I believe that and what the scripture says about that. But um, so you got to get all these things on the table and then picture how they fit together. So, but you see clearly that these two, the, the ram and the goat, the ram being the Medo-Persian Empire, which was defeated by the goat, which is the Grecian Empire, and then Alexander dies, and you have four horns coming up, which are the four kings that take control uh, after Alexander. You know, it's about 50 years of skirmishing there after Alexander the Great dies, people trying to take territory from each other. I mean, his generals fighting against each other. <laughs> but ultimately, it divides down into four parts uh, after about 50 years. So that's where we'll pick up next time. Uh, Daniel does a good job of describing it, but we'll try and bring some more stuff into the view so we can um, understand what is being pictured here. Right. Right. Yeah, year um, year and a half. Right, right, and that's where the kingdom falls. Right. And that, dear brother, 
Right. Right. Yeah, and, and you keep reading there in, in Ezekiel after chapter 24, and you get into the millennial kingdom. And the purpose of the millennial kingdom, to magnify his name, that all the nations will know that he is sovereign and to magnify his name. I'm not doing it for your sake. Remember that? I'm doing it for my name's sake. I'm doing it so everybody will know that I am the Lord Almighty. That's the whole purpose of all of this. And, and we have the great privilege of being where we're at today and being able to look back that Daniel was not sort of right. He was exactly right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as we get into chapter 10, it's just like in spades he was right. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous how accurate he is. Well, right, it wasn't, right? It was written in the first or second century B.C., so they say, because it's too accurate. And so they can't accept that God knew what was actually going to happen and told Daniel and showed it to him in a vision. This is all just nonsense. You've got to interpret this allegorically, and you can't look at it specifically in, in, in hard facts. Yes, you can. And that's what we'll continue to do um, because that's our hermeneutic. Right. Yes, you're right. Even if it was written in 200 BC, that's before the Romans, right? 153 or so, uh, before the Roman Empire actually defeats the Grecian Empire and becomes the world power. So um, anyway, I'll get off the soapbox. Thanks for your time.